0: People need order in Twelve Rules
1: So welcome to uh, Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam. I'm Alex. And uh, this is going to be a kind of slightly peculiar episode um, because it is my last episode of Twelve Rules for What. Um, yes, indeed. What we're doing today is we're going to be kind of reflecting... On 12 rules as a project um we're going to be looking back over the i guess like 80 or so uh full-length episodes we've done not all of them have numbers some have numbers so we actually have done slightly more than it seems but um reflecting on our two books that we've made uh we've written um and thinking about like the role i think very broadly of media in anti-fascism like what (laughs) <laughs> 80 episodes deep still no discipline on the mic
0: <laughs> I'm drinking you can't, yeah, you
1: can't, you can't be like, like you can oh, cut I'm, it out I'll, I can't cut it out because we're in the same room like if it was on Zoom I'd cut it out but you've got to be slightly um... okay I'll do the intro again no no you, you keep going Keep going. I am, I'm leaving uh, I'm not going to be doing the project anymore Alex is going to be carrying on but it's just me that is leaving for reasons that are, that are obvious to anyone who knows me we, we we have grown to up.
0: hate each
1: other. It's <laughs> actually not true. I think we've we've grown uh, in our friendship ever closer. But um, politically and... Well, not even politically. Politically, you are now a fascist. I'm now a fascist, yeah. And my, it just doesn't... <laughs> okay, you're going off the rails already. Whole anti-fascism thing doesn't really align with my, my beliefs anymore. So this episode is going to be a sort of combination somewhere between a, um, a struggle session in the kind of the Maoist mode... Couple's therapy, retrospective, retrospective. You know, all, all these, all these genres blended into one. First thing we're going to talk about is overall assessment of the project to date. Like, what is, what, 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 has is Twelve Rules? What done? Like, what was the point of it? What are we trying to do? Did we succeed in doing that? I don't know if you want to kick us off with a kind of general sense of what that is, but
0: well, I think we started the podcast because we felt there was a kind of general lack of analysis. About fascism and the far right on the left, yeah. Yeah. and on the anti-fascist movement, what what there was of it, and I was very frustrated by the like, kind of lack of dis- dis- discernment between um, different kind of far right projects, different far right movements, and and the kind of one size fits all reaction to yeah, um, yeah. response to them as well, which was, um, you know, to, we were when we started the project in two thousand and.
1: Well, the first episode comes out early 2019. The The first episode is recorded, however, 2018. Late 2018. In November. So context of the time is, of course, that um, the Feminists to the Front march against the DFLA has just happened in the UK. It's quite like a decisive turning point um, in the way that the anti-fascist movement relates to big far-right extreme movements in the UK. So part of what we want to do is kind of capture something of that, but also
0: try and push it further.
1: As Alex says, like there was... Not a lack of conversation <laughs>
0: about the far-right, <laughs> but there was a lack of analysis. The 2018 in particular was a, such a, a very strange time. In, in that year, there was the whole free Tommy cycle of, of far-right activity, um, in which initially the anti response was pretty pathetic, you know. Um, the, were the, kind of most, the biggest free Tommy demonstration, free Tommy was, uh, there was this, this far-right um, agitator, media guy, uh, activist, I suppose Tommy Robinson, who's, who's been, who was found the EDL and had been kind of part of the far right kind of uh, opposition to anti fascists for a long, for much of the 2010s, uh, had been um, jailed for a contempt of court for filming uh, outside uh, uh, the cases of um, child. Um, alleged child abuses at the time. At the time. I think they were convicted.
1: Yeah, I think some of them, were, some of them weren't.
0: Okay, well, let's say a Yeah. <laughs> and obviously filming is a contempt of court and he had been jailed for that and then released and then re-jailed. Um, and there was a whole thuror and this free Tommy movement built up, um, you know, and it had it gained international attention. Um, Paul Gosar, is kind of now fairly infamous because of January 6th, um, Republican congressmen had flown over, you know, he had got attention from rebel media in Canada and, you know, various American um, far-right kind of, Content creators and all this kind of stuff. The biggest free Tommy demo was a demonstration of fifteen thousand people, which is one of the largest far right demonstrations since the nineteen thirties. And the anti fascist response was very poor. Like you know, there was tens of anti fascists. It was a it was a situation that needed to be remedied, and thankfully it was remedied. And there was a bigger response to pre to subsequent demonstrations. Uh, you know, of thousands of people. And you know, as the year went on, the kind of numbers started to kind of redress themselves. And you know we got to this situation with the feminist anti-fascist blockade of the DFLA March, and so it was in that period, in that kind of metamorphosis from very small opposition, um, very kind of uh, lacking in any kind of much political, uh, you know, message or impetus to the dem- to the demonstration outside of we are opposed to the people who are over there. To the feminist anti fascist had a had a banner which said the enemy does not arrive by boat, it arrives by limousine. And, you know, that's you know, even more relevant now, actually, um, thinking about Rwanda policy and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was the context in which we wanted to start talking about um, the far right. I think part, part
1: of what had been the success of media projects on the left for the preceding 10 years um, had been the capacity to essentially keep movements kind of ticking over at the point where they weren't really actively doing anything in particular right? Um, anti-fascism has also has often had this particular problem, which is that it's a third or fourth order consequence of the dynamics of financial crises, right? Um, financial crises happen in capitalism, because it tends to produce crises. Um, then there's like social upheaval, then there's a far-right response to the social upheaval, then anti-fascism responds to that far-right response, right? There's a kind of a, a sense in which it's, a, it, it's got this unpredictable rhythm, to it um there's kind of this kind of peculiar um halting thing which means of course that it is difficult to sustain it during times when it isn't you know immediately pressing as a as a a concern of 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 the left and so part of the the role of kind of doing media organization and so on like 12 rules is to allow a certain kind of organizational reproduction to take place right people listen to podcasts you're listening to this one right now like it's not an enormous amount of like activity that uh, it required to do that, but nevertheless, it kind of keeps people in the loop of sustaining an interest in, in something, so that when they start that movement again or when that movement is kind of needed again, they're not starting from absolutely kind of cold. And so it's not just a, so this this kind of situation you were talking about with the the very uh, kind of paltry response to that that initial free Tommy demo part of the the intention of 12 rules for as a project was to make sure that that kind of paltry response didn't happen again because not because we are kind of you know producing a movement here but because we are hopefully to some extent like keeping uh
0: the kind of the the pilot light of anti-fascism lit well we were talking also talking about how i went back and listened to the first few episodes and it was quite a painful experience but what struck to me was like you know we we hit the note about people not discerning between fac- fascism and the far right enough, um, but we also kind of brought the point up of about generational knowledge and and transmission of that generational knowledge and how often such knowledge gets missed and gets kind of fallen and we, people people end up having to rebuild start from scratch again make the same mistakes make the same kind of you know go in the similar directions or whatever and we wanted to kind of you know these episodes that we produced together are going to be there for. As long as we keep up the
1: subscribe. You know, <laughs> as long as we as long as we pay SoundCloud uh, the money to host the, uh, the-
0: yeah, yeah, or like we can upload them anywhere or whatever. We yeah. yeah, and, and also the books are also part of that too. You know, yeah. the books can be passed around, the books can be read, you know, consumed, whatever, and the knowledge in there is is gonna last beyond us.
1: I should say that if you haven't yet
0: bought either book
1: or wanted or like you know read either book. Uh, this is absolutely the time to do it. You've written uh, for this for in preparation for this this discussion. Uh, you've written um, a really good collection of dis- like discussion points, um, most of which I have to say take essentially the same form, which is that there are two sides to the project. One is like the discussion of fascism, the other is the discussion of anti-fascism. and most of your criticisms are about failure to apply the lessons of one side to the other side. Is that a
0: fair summary of, sort of, what,
1: of what your kind of general, what the criticisms are?
0: I think we've been pretty good in discerning and making the point that there are distinctions in the far right, and then necessarily our analysis needs to acknowledge these distinctions, and our anti-fascism needs to, um, you know, account for these distinctions, these different modes in which um, the far right or the fa- or fascism organises politically, and and that certain tactics are appropriate for certain kind of forms of far right configura- configurations or activity. And I think oftentimes anti fascists are too undiscerning, everything becomes a far right. You know, everything becomes a glom of like fascism. And 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 even further to that, and even more problematically, oftentimes people get kind of get stuck in kind of an anti fascist way of thinking about politics in general. Interesting, yeah. what 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 are the parts of that? Every kind of any kind of political conflict is framed in the anti fascist way of you know, it, to put it crudely, my enemies are fascists and therefore must be totally annihilated and defeated or whatever in, in whatever yeah, yeah. kind of struggle and, and, and therefore our tactics are um, kind of spring from that, you know. Whereas anti-fascism is a very specific thing and it needs to be treated as a specific thing rather than being generalized out to the whole of left organizing. Yeah. Like in, and we, and it, so like, for example, if you're trying to build a... a, a a community union, for example, you're not all going to like work clandestinely and put your phones in the fridge and and do all this kind of st- do all this kind of stuff. <laughs>
1: you, Go on, you're speak, going speak to a truth,
0: speaker truth. Open meetings, and you know, and if then yeah. some fascist group in the area decides to threaten your community union or your meetings or whatever, then anti-fascism should come into play in some ways. But that's not like it's not like it should be the go to mode of 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 activity on the left obviously and i think a lot of people you know people that do accept that i think
1: for sure yeah i mean so so we when we're talking about kind of what fascism is i think one of the ways that we decided to talk about that at least i don't know if we talked about this on, the, on an episode but between us we did a few times is that fascism to describe something in like fascism warrants any kind of response at all right it's it's a, it's 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 like saying that something is an existential danger. It's like that. It's a description of a kind of political enemy against which anything is warranted, and that's just not true of like most political opponents. <laughs> like, um, I don't think there are any limits to what you could reasonably do against someone who is legitimately a fascist um, and who is in the in the position of instituting fascism as a political system on like on a large scale but yeah that doesn't uh that's just not viable as a, as, a, as a way of dealing with most people and even most people on the far right i should point out are, are not are not are not fascists and therefore i wouldn't legit i wouldn't warrant doing those things uh, to them either that's the thing we did well the criticism you made is that we didn't apply the same kind of discernment or differentiation to anti-fascism as a movement
0: i think we did apply um but we didn't, I don't think it's a matter of emphasis I anything. I think a lot of our episodes, and, and this is probably another kind of criticism you can make of of like left media about the far right, is often it takes a kind of freak of the week format, where like, let's talk yes. about this particularly grotesque figure or this particularly grotesque group. Which we've always avoided, oh, the, I think. I think so.
1: Yeah, and and quite deliberately as well, which is, of course, done no
0: favours to our um Numbers on <laughs> of well of listens. It's quite interesting because you can see the metrics. Like obviously, we see the metrics of of various of various kind of things that we we get through whatever the analysis. Like as we, over time, our episodes did better and better and were listed by more and more people. But there's particular ones which kind of spiked, <laughs> and they were the particular ones where we did kind of we did a whole episode about Tommy Robinson. It got a lot of listens. Or even the the last one we did about the Turner Diaries. That got like you know double or triple even the amount of listens in a day that we would usually get, and that's uh, that's part of the people are partly interested in these kind of very lurid things. You know, turnarounds is of great interest. That kind of you know these some these things are grotesque as well. You know, but the the, the way we defeat them is not to kind of revel in this in the kind of grotesqueness of them of, yeah. the, of the horribleness of these particular things. It's about thinking. What function are these kind of particular figures playing or these particular objects playing and how can we kind of ameliorate them or kind of account for them in our political activity? Yeah. I mean, the
1: other thing that should be said about that, not focusing on anti-fascism as a, as a collection of, of movements, is that the story of UK anti-fascism and the story of US anti-fascism during the time we've been doing the podcast since early 2019 have like quite rapidly diverged. UK anti-fascism has essentially disappeared, as a particular kind of um, activity, apart from some fairly uh, local and specific campaigns, there was obviously the campaign against um, in, in Bristol. There were some um, like connections with the BLM uh, uh, movement in early 2020, and then there were, there are were a few other kind of uh things. Um, but as a street movement, anti-fascism in the UK has been pretty pretty muted, and um, this is not for terrible reasons. It's partially because the far right has also been quite muted on the streets in the UK in the last few years. That that big cycle that we were talking about earlier with the Free Tommy and the DFLA, and um, uh, you know going into uh, twenty twenty, the kind of the, the statue defenders protests as well. Like th- this 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 cycle for better or worse. I mean for, for better, I think has essentially kind of been blunted and become more kind of more diffuse. So the, by being more discerning than perhaps some other people have been about the different parts of the far right, we've nevertheless still focused excessively, I think, on the far right. I think so. I think we like there is a in the UK in particular there is a major authoritarian transformation underway.
0: Yeah, well, this is something we can get yeah, to yeah. we can get to in a little bit in discussion. But just yeah. I think just Sorry. on the matter of emphasis, like I would have liked maybe. we've in the last, or maybe this is something we I can do in in, in the future. Yeah,
1: it? just to reiterate, Alex is doing this podcast still. It's just me who, like the coward I am, is 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 leaving.
0: Just on the matter of emphasis, just looking back at the, the work we've done together, I think there should have been a much more many more episodes, a, a, more of a focus on movement building, and that you know I, I kind of had a reluctance about that because I, I have this kind of thing against against like extending past the topic of your podcast, and that's too much. I feel like movement building, you know, is a kind of more general thing that the left should be doing generally, obviously. But it's important to understand how to like kind of sustain a group, how to like resolve conflicts, how to, um, you know, uh, produce relevant work that energizes people and doesn't demoralize people. Uh, how to you know sustain activity through low, low periods, and how to sustain activity through high frenetic periods of, of organising, which in which you know people get burnt out. All those kind of things, I think, are really important. It's not something we did particularly talked about particularly much, e-
1: even though actually in our analysis of, in particular, the collection of new organisational forms that we discussed in post internet far right, where we talk about um, the unity, the kind of the total institution of the far right organisation, like paradigmatically. Generation identity, but you have also talk about Patriot Front in the US and the Proud Boys. What they manage to do is have a unity of purpose, a unity of identity, and a unity of worldview. So there's always something for you to believe about yourself. There's always something for you to do. And whenever anything happens, there's always a way of thinking about it that the group will provide, right? And that's what uh, fire organizations are, are capable of providing for their members. That's why people stay in them, because they give them things to do, things to be, and things to, to know about the world, or ways of understanding the world. And like, Obviously, in some ways, that is quite like a uh, totalitarian-sounding organisation. I think that's not the wrong word there. Like, that is a kind of totalitarianism, a small totalitarianism. And anti-fascist organisations definitely shouldn't try and do that. But exactly how they are reproduced or, or organised and so on, um, I think, falls back into this kind of question of culture, this question of anti- what is anti-fascist culture. Uh, and that is uh, a genuinely quite vexed question um and one that has all kinds of received answers that somehow haven't changed since uh well several generations of anti-fascists were uh, operative and so I think yeah th- th- these these kind of questions sh- we should have focused much more on although as i say we we do just deal with both these questions in the the conclusions to both books
0: then so the kind of next thing i wanted to talk about is um kind of maybe focusing on the second book which is about obviously the called the rise of eco-fascism and it's the question of how anti-fascism, will anti-fascism interact more with environmental movements? And if so, how will it? Um, Do we think that, um, you know, these kind of scenarios that we laid out in in the book will, you know, kind of necessitate kind of coming together anti-fascism and movements, for for example, climate justice? And I wondered, you know, how relevant is the rise of eco-fascism going to be in 10 years time, for example, which is is kind of the rough time period for like doing anything at all about the climate crisis?
1: You mean how relevant is the book going to be? Or how relevant is the tendency going to be?
0: Well, how relevant, how, you know, how prescient is the book going to be? I mean, well, obviously I mean, I, I, we I, think I, it's...
1: I think extremely prescient. I mean, like, I, I'm not, I can't really get out of that, that that framework. I think it's basically correct. Yeah, I think it makes basically accurate predictions about the future. I should say the predictions it makes about the future. If you haven't read the book, or if you're one of our reviewers and you haven't read the book, then the prediction we make about the future is not there'll be unbridled ego-fascism everywhere. And this means the unity of the far right with like spurious environmentalism that's not the claim we make in the book we think that the 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 far right will manage to fit itself into a collection of kind of cracks as societies break down as they become ever more stressed and indeed more kind of abstractly i guess as things like knowledge um change in society that sounds like a very very peculiar abstract question what i mean by that is that if you think about medical authority or you think about um, the authority to describe the world um, or you think about the abilities of science to predict what is going to happen next climate change threatens this uh, in the same way that the COVID pandemic seemed for lots of people on the far right lots of kind of conspiracists on the far right seem to threaten the capacity of uh, medical establishments to describe the world or to adequately predict it and so on right and therefore you get weird movements that I wouldn't describe as exclusively far-right, things like anti-lockdown movements, things like anti-vax movements, which are mercifully quite small in the UK uh, because there's very high levels of public trust in the NHS, but like, obviously are much more powerful elsewhere, uh, indeed even in continental Europe. So it's not a distinction between uh, public healthcare and, and private healthcare. The point being that like, climate change threatens the, these kinds of uh, social stabilities, that there is someone out there uh, who can predict and understand the world. The world is in principle understandable. And the far right, I think to some extent, might look increasingly in the future like a collection of movements that takes advantage of a basic confusion about the world, rather than a collection of movements that uh, resolve into the kind of the normal talking points, right? Um, it's the Jews, it's, it's black people, it's uh, Muslims, it's, you know, whatever, the kind of standard far right talking points within the 20th century. Although not that those would go away, but they will like not be emphasized, and so in that sense, that this fire at the fire might might become more predictable. The book will not be particularly prescient because the main argument the book makes <laughs> about fire movements is they will be unpredictable. Um, it's obviously quite a bit of a cop out, but like it's basically the only way in which I think you can take those those things. Um, nevertheless, there are persistent ideas about the rights or organization of nature, the the order of nature, the, the racial character of nature, and so on. Um, that will persist, and I think we're basically going to be correct about about those things. As to where exactly on the kind of the different scales of organisation that we've kind of mapped out in our sort of anatomy of the far right, as to which one would be most important, you know, will it be a, a state response, will it be a movement response, will it be a kind of terroristic response? Well, I think the the real danger, as we've we've repeated many times, comes in the in the coordination of the different parts.
0: And how do you think anti-fascism is going to react, um, interact with movements for climate justice?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is the, the kind of perplexing. Should it? What are the points of interaction?
0: I mean, I mean for so that, me, the basic interaction is a defense of those movements, which obviously is the ultimate kind of point of anti-fascism: is to defend the kind of left-wing or liberatory organizing from reactionary, um, you know, opposition. Yeah, but so,
1: so, like, if we take that notion seriously, the main place where left-wing movements come under attack is not physically on the streets by people from, like, fascist groups.
0: Not right now, but it was, like, maybe five years ago.
1: No, the main place where they come under attack is in the
0: media. Okay.
1: So, like, uh, so uh, I- I- in this sense, I, I think that I'm more sceptical of the, of the need for a particular anti-fascist kind of grouping to do the kind of the, uh, the work of anti-fascism.
0: Okay. So you think, for example, patriotic alternative... No one should oppose them. They should be allowed to freely organise, get stronger, you know, until they get on the media. And then when Mark collects on the BBC, you're like, right, now is the time.
1: No, I, I don't think that, Alex. That is, that's obviously a straw man. That is not what I believe. What I'm saying is that the, the, in the position that you are, you are arguing for, right, which is the defence of, of left-wing movements, what are the specific cases of the far-right attacking left-wing movements
0: in the UK? Like, okay, like for example, Statue Defenders. Yeah. That's a very good example. It is a very good example. But the, but the reason why there was the,
1: the initial left-wing movement wasn't because there was some sort of anti-fascist group that was capable of um, doing having the right kind of politics or being reproduced in the right kind of way. It was because there was a, a genuinely popular uprising in the form of Black Lives Matter, right, which was able to articulate a much broader politics, one aspect of which, got uh, you know received the ire of the of the far right and then there was a kind of a, a need for this this particular thing uh this kind of de- defense of, of of those movements i disagree but, with uh, your uh, analysis the, about that. that i don't defense. think the
0: one particular aspect of blm was offensive no, okay. to white supremacists
1: no okay fine all of it is but nevertheless like the but that would that would that, that the actual conflict happened at very like sharp moments where right? the conflict happened at moments around statues in particular and given that most of the work of defending left-wing movements happened inside the mass like anti-racist movement not inside not from like a a group of kind of specialized mobilized anti-fascists it doesn't strike me that that that's particularly kind of
0: uh well i mean if you're if you're trying to make the point that you think left left left-wing movements should have a like a reflex of anti-fascism to them well of course i think that and in fact where else is your movement anti-fascist movement going to come from Where where else in the past did like movements against you know movements against racism mostly against fascism where did they draw from? Well, from existing communist yeah
1: movements yeah. So this is I I agree with this okay. But but the but the the specialisation of anti-fascism as a particular kind of group that like needs to do something in particular I think is warranted in the UK for one specific reason right now right which is the existence of patriotic alternative. And outside of that I'm not entirely sure that it has a clear target a clear function. For me
0: that's enough though.
1: Totally, yeah, yeah. So we're agreed on that. But like, the idea I think that is is wrong here is that the. So it's very hot in the room now. Uh, Alex and I kind of, uh, uh, we're, it's like we're having an international discussion in the sauna. Um, so both kind of dripping with sweat. I think one of the major dangers is like understanding anti-fascism as an identity.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think anti-fascism is something um, that you should do when it when it is necessary. But I al- I also think there is a need for like a kind of. I don't know which way to describe it doesn't sound like a diminishing, but you know, like a kind of core movement. There needs to be like, of which 12 rules is a part of another thing, you know, Red flare for example, um, other kind of things. Like, you know, can understand what's coming next. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, if people like kind of think, ah, oh, fascism is not a threat anymore. The far right are not a threat and not relevant in the UK. And we should talk about why they're not relevant in, not particularly relevant in the UK right now. Because okay. of the
1: Conservatives have outflanked them.
0: Okay, well, that's the next question I was going to get yeah. to.
1: It's always, it's always the answer. It's
0: been, it's been the answer for 100 years. There is a need to understand what, when the next thing is coming, where the next thing is coming from, and how to best oppose it as well.
1: Yeah, I, I, to- I totally agree with that. So I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing more and more with, that, with what you're saying. As, as, uh,
0: Great, because I'm right. No, I, d- I don't doubt it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so just coming back to what you said about the uh, Conservative Party
1: outflanking the far-right.
0: So we, we mentioned this uh, um, a couple of times already, and in fact, we've made mention of this throughout the, the podcast series.
1: And put him repeatedly in the books, and like yeah, we've said it loads of times, it's a I very important that, that,
0: that, aspect yeah, the, of the far-right in the UK. The organised far-right is very weak. Yeah, in the UK, and has been since the demise of the BNP in 2009. Which, you know, to be fair, it's not that long ago in, in a historical sense, but it's longer in a kind of political ongoing sense.
1: I, I would slightly, I would slightly modify that. I think that the uh, the, the electoral far right has been uh, pretty weak. I think the organizational form of both the EDL and the DFLA was this kind of. Um, uh, complicated street movement style thing that didn't have a formal structure but nevertheless was quite good at mobilizing networks. I think that is a viable organizational form. So I would, I would describe them as organize, organized.
0: Okay. Um, the The question remains, why is, um, you know, looking at the, taking a global perspective, yeah. we have far-right movements threatening, you know, for governmental power in, in France, for example. Yeah, yeah just, is in power. Orban is in power. Modi's in power. You know, all, all there are like kind of quite, um Active, intense street movements in various places yes, as well, yeah. you know in Germany for example yeah. um why is it that in the uk this kind of organizational thing has kind of fallen away
1: i think so yeah the, the main historical reason the reason that 's been the reason for maybe a hundred years uh, is the extraordinary staying power um, of the Conservative Party in um, essentially absorbing energy to the far right of it, to the right of it. Um, the conservative party is a very broad coalition of uh, people in its most kind of recent phase I think the um, the normal way of splitting it up um, is between the three different groups of people one of the kind of the the old reactionaries um, people with like genuinely really intensely nasty social views uh, people who are, like just like homophobic racists
0: and, and actually those mps still like exist in the past like, they're like mad evangelicals yeah. who like don't believe in uh, like want to ban homosexuality and they, yeah. they just start say it out loud
1: yeah but it, some of them have done media training but like they're still there none of them like they're not the cabinet because like these people they're, they're kind of uh, to use a term that we've kind of used about people on the far right before they're kind of freaks yeah. massive um, freaks but they're just like very posh freaks who also who also happen to be mps rather than like People are posting weird shit on the internet, right? So they're,
0: they're,
1: they're, 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 they're the freaks contingent, but also just like you know the old guard of um, conservative reaction. Then there's the kind of the the, the kind of the, the modernizing wing uh, of the Tory Party, which is contains people like you know, David Cameron and uh, George Osborne, which is like distinctly uh, neoliberal in its kind of outlook pretty socially liberal, obviously, you know, famously, of course, uh, it's the Tories who bring in uh, gay marriage, um, don't think that uh, these people are, like, actively or interpersonally racists. Um, nevertheless, like, the consequences of their policies are unquestionably, like, to destroy uh, people of colour's lives indiscriminately. Those people are not on the up and up in the Tory party right now. They were, obviously, during the Cameron years. Like Cameron is maybe the archetypal kind of, uh, version of this Tory. And that gave a good deal of space to a much harder, socially conservative, right-wing movement like the EDL to 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 flourish in in the UK. Also, of course, the other condition for the EDL is that it's a it's a time of politics in general, like people are. Much more heavily politicised, uh, given the great financial crisis and, and so on. There are also new organisational forms that are that are brewing at this time. There's also
0: the building of Brexit as well, which like, yeah. was really relevant to the EDL and really relevant to the DFLa. Yeah, like seeing it through, it happening, which was a victory, which was an energising victory, and then you know after the victory, seeing it through again, making yeah. sure it happened.
1: Yeah, and I should say that. that so the, the the third part of this. Um, of the split in the Tory Party, of course, it's much more complex than this. These are just very right, rough cuts. The third part of that split in the Tory Party is like the One Nation Tories, um, which includes obviously Heath, famously, but also arguably Boris Johnson, right? Who has in it, who has what he describes and what is able to kind of pass off as essentially a kind of paternalistic conservatism, right? Like we're going to take care of the country, we're going to you know do what's in the national interest, and so on. We're going to believe in a in a British interest as a whole right which as a marxist i would obviously say is like uh, nonsensical it's just like a projection onto a class society that is like fundamentally kind of split but that's that's that that's their ideology i think they believe it quite quite sincerely i think they're kind of lying about it but nevertheless in practice what they increasingly become because they are trying to manage what is still a decade-long downturn quite intense downturn in the standard of living and with the war in ukraine and possibly with the energy crisis that's coming towards us and with Climate change as well, and obviously with a pandemic, like what is arguably a kind of quite substantial tightening of, of collective belts, um, at least for the for the working class, right? So it's a kind of one nation Toryism that projects a kind of paternalistic attitude. Uh, we're all in it together, and so on. But at the same time, is like actually just as brutal economically as the uh, the modernizing wing of the party, the, kind of the neoliberal wing of the party, and at the same time, importantly, actually in its depths. Priti Patel, for example, just as reactionary,
0: Total freak. like
1: just as like intimately and personally reactionary as uh, the, the like the really weird people who you never see because they're like they just can't go on the, on the media because they like, they just they just come across as completely deranged, right? So you know, just as reactionary as those people, but nevertheless in the government, in power, and so on, and it's that group of people who have been really, really good at absorbing the energy of the far right. Um, you don't need to have a street movement if you've got Pretty Patel as the, the you know, Home Secretary. It's just not necessary.
0: You can see that with the kind of following way of UKIP, following away of the Brexit party, squeezing out of any kind of, to, to the further right party, and indeed most third or minor parties have been squeezed out of politics. There's no need for them. And one of the things that we have began to move towards, and I think we actually continue moving towards it, is a kind of accounting for kind of, what you kind of mentioned previously is a, a more general authoritarian, right-wing authoritarian expansion uh, and turn in the British state of within the yeah. Tory Party as well, which can be can be seen through the the institution and the passage of, of various quite restrictive and quite you know scary bills against you know right to protest against uh, migrants, the obviously very famous and you know, deliberately kind of cruel policy of, de- of forced deportations to Rwanda. And also, uh, I know, should say as well, the kind of stripping away of any kind of um, liability for state power. Mm. And then we can see that with the kind of, um, you know, the fact that state agents overseas can basically commit crimes, any yes. kind of crimes, whatever they want, you know. And, and it would be, be allowed, essentially, by the British state, not necessarily by, obviously, the states in which those crimes are committed, but they, obviously the idea is they get, get away with it, come back, they won't be held accountable. You can see this in the kind of the impulse of the Tories, you see, for example, in the real strikes, the first impulse is to legislate against the first impulse is to bring forward the bill that will solve the problem like yeah. a legal remedy uh, which kind of restricts whatever freedom is getting in their way, and so we see you know bringing in agency workers for the for the, to break the break the um real strikes, or when you know the the european Court of convention of Hu- Court of Human rights um, you know stopped the, um, the, the the first flight you know. We're gonna bring the, bring forward immediately the Bill of Rights, this kind of thing. The another example is, you know, XR is locking on or just stop earl is locking on to things, making them very let's make locking on itself a specific criminal yeah, offence. Yeah. You know. Um all these kind of this is this constant impulse to kind of further legislate out any kind of um disruptive activity. And I think we've we've done a good way of I think we've done a good job of, of accounting for that. We could do it more as well. Um but what we need to understand is this um this authoritarianism, um, although at, at the moment it's, 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 it's kind of, you know, quote-unquote, an providing an anti-fascist function in that it's stamping out any kind of far-right kind of move, manoeuvre, room to manoeuvre. yes. This this doesn't necessarily carry on with the kind of worsening of conditions, living conditions, worsening of the cost of living crisis, the kind of the the, the broadening of immiseration more generally means that this one you know this, this situation doesn't have to continue. And once it does, we'll, we'll anti-fascism was even more limited by yeah. these new restrictions. You know, the left will be even more limited and even less moved room to kind of move. Um, because they're now kind of established law, and and the police have got used to enacting them, and and these practices are now ingrained in the kind of grinding everyday kind of workings of of the British state and British capitalism.
1: Yeah, and so um, under under worsening conditions, conservative authoritarianism is just a long road back to fascism. Right, like, there's yeah, it's not like a kind of a it's not a opposed movement; it's just like a, a a delay, basically. I mean, one of the things that was most kind of characteristic about the collection of movements in the Cameron period, the EDL, the FLA, and so on, was mostly what they were arguing for was the state just like do what its job is, <laughs> like just for the state to implement its own laws. There wasn't really a kind of a, uh, a radical program beyond that in many cases. Um, and then the state just did that with like pretty brutal.
0: So with the kind of austerity drive, you had this kind of hollowing out of services, the privatization, selling off, kind of making, making the state's functions, the kind of care capacity of the state empty taking away support and now you have a similar thing except there's this kind of extra edge going along with it as well and things are getting further hollowed and also there's this other stuff going on
1: i think one of the most most kind of important trends that we were very good at picking up on and which we do a really good job of analyzing in 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 our first book post internet far right we do indeed really good you don't know what it is but uh
0: that book's banging mate
1: Alex doesn't know what the trend is, but he's convinced that we hundred percent. <laughs> no skips. No skips. Only hits. Um, all killer no filler uh, is the 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 changes in subjectivity, right? The changes in like the ways in which people on the far right, or indeed people in general, think about themselves as failures, successes, and so on, and the way in which they try and make themselves in relation to other people, or indeed in relation to like some sort of ideal. And this, I think, is really important in the Cameron period, is the construction of like the left as a, as 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 a particular kind of horrifyingly um, effeminate enemy for the far right, um, which mean which explains, I think, a great deal—not entirely, but explains a great deal of why it is that the worsening conditions um, can be continually deferred or displaced as a uh, object of uh, ire. Onto totally false um, uh, enemies like migrants and so on, um, and so I kind of wonder, like, what do you think has changed since we wrote that? Like, do you think that the the basic conditions of feeling, just how we talked about it, are still the same um, as when we wrote that chapter about feelings in the, in that in that book?
0: I think a lot of it was tied to Trump, and now Trump is not the figure he was. And he's not in the position he was. He's no longer a figure of victorious, of victory. He's a figure of defeat. Um, and whether that defeat comes from an extensive injustice because he got scammed out of the election or whether it's because he yes. was revealed to be uh, the not the kind of new Hitler that some of these people wanted, that's a different matter. But we, even in the UK as well, this kind of feeling of like being you know, the rising tide of Trump bringing up everybody else as well, that kind of thing that's kind of exacerbated and there is a turn has been also been a turn against although you see it's still really present you can see it particularly with the kind of internet um, the kind of horrific internet discourse around the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing trial where you can see this kind of uh, you know kind of kind of roiling um, like sea of resentment which the internet kind of suppresses or brings to the surface at any given moment from that trial you know the, the there's that you know there's the kind of every internet phenomenon is built on a sense of momentum you know it's a sense of everything's growing you can see with crypto NFTs yeah. you can see it with you know um, Q even you know this thing is getting bigger and bigger and we're all a part of it yeah. and you can see that it didn't really pan out or it won't it's not necessarily panning out right now but you could see who's next who can we defend next it going to be marilyn manson for example you know where can we go to take this next and it, it kind of dissipated. but if the, that trial had happened say in 2016 you could see the kind of the, the 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 weight of feeling growing and and bringing in other kind of unjust you know cases of injustice against men mm. you know all this kind of thing and that that, that kind of impetus isn't there anymore and, you know, the, the, alt, the alt-right has essentially been broken into many different pieces, as, as we've, you know, talked about.
1: It has, but also what's happened, uh, it's kind of shattered. So that kind of space on the far-right is shattered. But I think actually, to some extent, something quite similar as we have talked about happening in the UK with this absorption of the the, the street movement far-right by uh, the kind of conservative institutions has happened in the US as well, right? This is the, the v. wade overturning decision by the US Supreme Court, right? This is... Uh, um, a
0: product of Trumpism,
1: yeah. It's not only a product of Trumpism in, in the kind of institutional it's right? That you know, the, the, I think two or three of those ju- justices are sitting because of Trump. Three, three. Not only because of that, but also because there's a you know a sense in which the um the the far right in the US because it has always been closer to institutional power via the kind of the slightly more open door of the Republican Party to the far right um, that. Has that means that um, the attentions of, uh, of where the the, the energy and on the right is, I think, has shifted much as it has in the UK, in the US, and this is something that I think is probably going to continue for a while, right? Um, yes, there are new forms of institutional, new forms of organizational power on the internet. Yes, there are new forms of kind of sporadic network movements, but like, I think the the window in which those were the real determinative of collective power um is relatively quickly coming to an end um, and we're back to a kind of institutional story where what matters is like the legislative the judiciary the executive and so on like politics is kind of back in the institutions right
0: having said that you can even trace it back obviously to the institute like kind of the rise of neoliberalism in, in the late 70s and 80s and the hollowing and therefore we you know we talked about this the hollowing out of kind of political movements or political yeah. kind of any kind of alternative political form, whether that be you know, it's particularly the kind of the workers' movement or the trade union movements. Yeah. Movements for kind of the liberation of of of, work, of working people. Um and And with that hollowing out, you know, the the right, it didn't didn't happen to the far right in the the same way, you know, and the the institution of those three justices came from like a very long running campaign and and agitation from the Federalist Society and other kind of of Republican adjacent institutions, which was, you know, had this decade long project to put these really right wing judges on courts and get them fed through the kind of legal training system for judges in America and you know we 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 haven't had we've had we have a similar kind of phenomenon here from the you know thatcher period onwards um um but it's much less clear i think in the uk and that's probably why we haven't had seen the kind of we have much more cyclical um far right in that there's not these kind of underlying driving forces necessarily in the same way one of the examples of those kind of institutions and it's not kind of a particularly old institution but the, the Henry jackson society for example is this kind of one that straddles it the spectator has been very porous to kind of, you know, kind of quite explicit fascist writers. Um, these kind of things are, and, and you can always refer back to, you know, the political editor's son, you know, cribbing directly from an Aryan network diagram to, to smear Corbyn. You know, all these things are just there, you know, they're kind of just adjacent, and so, sometimes they kind of intersect, and so, and most of the time they stay kind of separate but infinitesimally close together.
1: Yes, yeah, publicly mediated. Like they're kind of they're, they're publicly separated, but they are kind of uh, swimming in the same mucky uh, waters.
0: It's funny seeing like figures like people like, when Owen Jones confronted the Ed Fraser Nelson of The Spectator on a, on TV. Like you have tacky writing for you. You've got a column still, and it's all it, kind of, the whole thing was treated as kind of a, an embarrassing thing to raise, You know, almost. It was like a you know kind of thing. That's the kind of mm. kind of actually the British establishment has to to this this phenomenon.
1: Yeah, which is which is odd, right? Because the British right, conservative right, is in some ways much more stable than the American conservative right, and it's been kind of proved so. Um, it should not have been, or it would not have been, rather as easy for a figure like Trump to uh, come along in the UK and just like kind of kick down the major party. Uh, kick in its door and like take it over right, which is what Trump did to the Republican Party um, it's surprising that he was able to do that but I think shows a certain kind of institutional weakness or institutional fragility and the power of, of um, the movement that was behind him uh, and the kind of peculiar power of the movement that was behind him as well um, whereas in the UK the as you were saying like there's a much more cyclical character to the far right um, but the institutions I think are much more stable, much more solid um, and e- either there's a kind of just a story about like political culture here or, um, I think there's possibly even a story about like, uh, the ways in which the two countries operate in uh, global capitalism, right? which is that uh, the UK is basically a kind of a financial outpost of global capital. That's the point of it. Um, it no longer has an empire. What it has instead is it uh, has a kind of financial empire um, that produces financial services for the world, basically, but is otherwise not particularly important. Um, whereas America is the global hegemon. And this is a much more kind of complicated and difficult thing for uh, the US to do. And of course, you can you know, bring in Brexit here, of course, like, as a kind of a delusion of uh, the UK that it is um, yeah, actually... Never, never
0: market. shall be slain.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Yeah, all, all this kind of nonsense. But anyway, so it's a much more complicated story about like the difference between US and UK uh, political culture more generally, I think. We wrote two books. They're both very good. You should read them. Uh Listen to this podcast, back the old episodes, but don't have to do that in kind of you know nostalgically, uh, thinking of the old good times when they were coming out new. Because Alex is still going to go forward, I think, with this podcast in some form. Tell us about your plans for that.
0: Yeah, so you know we, we covered a lot of episodes. We could we could we covered a lot of subjects in our in our in our run, um, but there's some things that are missing that I would I really want to address, and we're going to I'm going to address in in the next few weeks and months, uh, particularly kind of. A kind of consideration of the kind of new culture of fascist fitness, uh, which is particularly a thing on Telegram, but also kind of links to IRL organizing because it's it's you know parts of hiking and and kind of martial arts culture and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I would like to we're going to do an episodes about um, prevent and counterterrorism. I think that's really important, and also to talk about the kind of movement building one-on-one stuff, which. Um, I think ultimately is where we need to start looking.
1: Great. I look forward to listening to all of that.
0: And we'll get you back on to talk about Collapse whenever you actually produce a newsletter.
1: I have been. It's coming out every Thursday.
0: Oh, right. I haven't noticed.
1: No, you don't subscribe to it. I've noticed. Yeah, so uh, there is a, as Alex mentions, or doesn't, there is a um, Collapse newsletter now. It comes every Thursday. It's about Collapse, uh, about the collapse of this society, previous societies. Uh, the potential for uh, future collapses, uh, what that means politically, how history is being structured by collapses. One of the claims we make, actually, uh, that is kind of relevant here is in the Ecofascism book. We talk about the ecological system of the Americas, uh, which is regarded by lots of the settlers as a kind of a terra nullis, um, an empty land which can just be kind of have one's will imposed upon it. So in some ways, it's, it's possible to say that um, the condition for American uh, political life as it currently exists is the collapse of the previous civilization. Uh, and it's also possible to understand lots of the, for example, advice in the Bible as essentially attempts attempt to ward off um, the early Bronze Age collapse. Uh, which happens, so the late Bronze Age collapse, which happens um, a few years before most of the Bible is actually written So in some ways like, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a sense in which all political culture is um, The response to uh, Different kinds of collapse or kind of the emergence of societies from different kinds of collapse Never final, it's never done Unless everyone dies, which is very unlikely But yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the puzzle we'll be talking about uh, How do we deal with the possibility that we are in uh, the end of the world? Uh, or at least this world and what do we do about the world that comes next
0: and where can people find your your new newsletter
1: Collapseology? so like the study of collapse com. it's all there there are like four or five things up there now that we want every week so yeah go and listen
0: great uh, really? and one final announcement for me uh we'll be doing a a new book club on uh Race to the Bottom, which is an interview I did with the authors a couple of episodes ago about anti-racism and anti-racism from below and its corruption from by anti-racism from above. And so if you want to um, join in on that, the book's just come out, it came out on the 20th of June. Um, yeah, just message the Twitter or the Instagram or send us an email uh, and we can get you added to the Discord and that's open to all Patreon supporters as well. So if you're a Patreon supporter, we'll be finding out about that soon
1: cool um it's been a pleasure
0: yeah it's been it's been pretty good out there. well done can we open the window now 12 rules <laughs>